Hey, 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 welcome back, AIMP Nashville Pubcast listeners. It's your host, Tim Hunzi. Man, I'm telling you, you're going to be enlightened today in this episode as we talk to my guest, Pat Colberson. He's the senior VP and GM of Big Loud Records, and we discuss the future of streaming albums. We discuss the success of Morgan and Hardy, and we also hear his advice for growing your own fan base. Hey, hey, welcome back, AIMP Nashville Pubcast listeners. Super excited to get into this episode. We're sitting with Patch Colberson, Senior Vice President and GM of Big Loud Records. Welcome aboard, Patch. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to sit and pick your brain a little bit today, but I always like to give my guests an opportunity to kind of give us a little about yourself and given that I can't call you an outsider anymore. You were from a you came in as an outsider, but why don't you give us a quick background? What got you in AR and what got you to Nashville? Yeah, I got here by way of being a transfer student. You know what I mean? <laughs> we welcomed you. We're we're very proud to have you here. You're doing a great job, man. Oh, I felt the love when I got here. So my career started back in 2009 uh, when I started at Republic Records in New York City. And I, I started on the desk of Avery Lippman, the uh, co-founder of that company, as an AR coordinator. Kind of rose up the ladder throughout maybe an eight-year tenure there. I uh, signed a lot of different acts across a lot of different genres and ended up making the jump in 2017 to, to Big Loud Records, uh, which was a, a baby label at the time. They kicked that off in 2015 and uh, been here ever since. Haven't been at Republic, which is a pretty powerful label up in, in New York. And yeah, you did get to work with a variety of artists. What attracted you to want to come and join Seth and Joey and uh, and Craig at Big Loud? I really loved what they were building. And I, I got to know those guys starting in 2012 around the Florida Georgia Line deal, uh, which we had the venture at the time through Big Machine with uh, Republic Nashville. Got to know kind of what they were building from the publishing and management perspective and uh, really fell in love with them and, and was falling in love with the town too. We all know Nashville is one of the best cities, although New York's pretty cool, but uh, love me some love me some Nashville. And you guys have just continued to destroy and uh, being at, at an indie as well. I, I just applaud that. But you guys have, have just been rocking, which is why I was like, who can I get to come on? I need to talk to Patch because I know that around the building, you're known as Stat Daddy. So it's interesting. <laughs> so I want to talk about A&R. A&R's obviously changed some over the years. You know, old school, you went to saw a lot of live shows. It, you heard what was kind of bubbling. You saw something. Somebody's building an audience. But the way we find out and kind of study artists is a tad different. So maybe give me your philosophy of A&R and how you go about and approach your daily job of like, especially when it's pointing to like looking at talent, trying to find the right talent that's going to work for you guys. It was a big culture difference in terms of the A&R process between Nashville and New York. I think, uh, yes, there is that traditional sense of, of going out and seeing a lot of shows. When I had the opportunity at Republic, I joined a, a team that, an A&R team that was uh, fairly data and research focused in terms of finding artists who had releases out there that we could kind of study all that different consumption and uh, make our decisions around those in addition to uh, maybe more uh, taste signings as well uh, that didn't have uh, repertoire out. But I kind of started in that school of thought where there is kind of this art and commerce balance, but really what is what is the audience saying uh, and how do we chase those movements? And then coming to Nashville, 
it just all absolutely begins with the song. It is, it, it's uh, a very different process, but something I just find so enriching. Um, but it's funny because the superstars of today we've seen grow up through writing rooms on the row and at your whiskey jams and the various showcases around town and uh, maybe opening up for uh, your own roster acts uh, throughout the years. And then there's that kind of pivotal moment where all those boxes are, are checked and uh, they're ready to run. So from the A&R perspective of kind of discovering talent, there's there's quite a difference. But there's also just that mentality of, especially those that, that are writing their own records, that it is a day in, day out commitment. Um, there's, there's a lot of other formats where you do not have writers coming in and, and building out sessions and writing Monday through Thursday and then touring uh, Friday and Saturday. It's a pretty incredible process that they have here. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, as I said, very enriching. I'm curious, do you see, because I have, have this overarching feeling these days, because I'm a little older than my, some of my, I've been doing this for 30 years, it, it feels like the speed of A&R and uh, searching for artists is really sped up. Like you have to get on early or move fast or really make your bets a little quicker. Are you feeling that pressure there or do you guys kind of keep your own pace and do your own thing? We feel the pressure, but I, I welcome it. I think honestly, it's it's uh, a lot of the major labels, the coastal labels are now in the game in Nashville. Uh, they've been seeing throughout the years kind of the magic that's been happening in this market. And uh, from an artist development perspective, yeah, just trying to jump on what's happening here. And there's a lot of great A&R people at those coastal labels that between New York and LA that are um, wanting to get involved here. But I, I welcome the competition. I think it's healthy and uh, allowing people to make maybe some quicker decisions these days and, and getting some artists out the gate. But really when it comes down to it, kind of going back to the artist development conversation, that's one of the beautiful things that happens here is we have a sense to know uh, when these artists are truly ready versus some of the risks that are taken in the signings uh, for some of the majors, maybe outside of our format, where they just go maybe sign an artist that has never performed before, or uh, they, they wrote one song and, and they're kind of throwing all their chips in for uh, hoping, hopefully seeing that song react and maybe a, a sophomore release as well. Uh, go, but we talked about the song being the core of it all. That really is here, and it's it's an interesting dynamic too, where artist development starts essentially with the publishing companies in Nashville. There's so many deals that happen, and where you get your pub deal first and build throughout that incubation process, and and how people's writing uh, expertise is nurtured. Whereas you look in New York and LA, typically you leverage all the success of your record and sign your publishing deal at the peak of your record. So those those are pretty big differences, and I, I feel like there's sometimes a, a piece missing in that puzzle of, of the artist development that Nashville offers a lot of the art, artists out there. Yeah, I agree. We're very uh, supportive and, and allow them time to really grow and very hands-on. And speaking of that, let's get to some specifics. Like when you're looking for an artist, what are some things that you see that 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 attract you to that artist today? Whether it's a data thing or, and I'm sure it's a combo of things, but is it a live thing? Like, how are you researching? What what tools are you using to to explore and find the talent that you want to use and, or work with over there at Big Loud? No, let, let's go with somebody who doesn't have any music out yet. There's there's uh, something to be said for somebody that walks in the room and commands the room, that feels like a star. It, either they're evoking that presence or 
the way you talk to them or the way they talk about their music, there's a tone in that vocal quality that uh, just cuts through that is different from everything else can be a reason for it. Uh, somebody just has an incredible pen, just writes in a way that you haven't heard yet, or just is maybe uh, ages ahead of where maybe a new artist would be. Uh, and you can see that future uh, for them in their writing prowess. And then honestly, for the other uh, artists in the, in the category of people that are putting out music, does exposure result in consumption? And what does that uh, kind of trend look like for them? That's really a fundamental when it comes down to it is when their records are being exposed in whatever fashion it may be, whether it's a sync on TV, whether it's on social media or maybe a certain playlist, is it reacting in a way that people are truly consuming and coming back to that record? Let's talk about Hardy, if you don't mind sharing some of like, that was such a bold record to have the Mockingbird and the Crow record come out because it was really unique and it was definitely a little bit of a leap for him. Uh, and, you know, I remember when he put Sold Out out as a single, I was like, oh, that spoke to my metal heart. So I was loving it. What made him kind of decide to push a little bit that way? Because I know he's had hits at rock radio and he has hits at radio. Like what was what was part of that process? And and we kind of see a resurgence in that, I guess. Uh, I was talking to Falcon recently on a on an episode of the AIP podcast, and he too is kind of a metalhead, and we're very joyous at this new trend, uh, like with the Co Wetzels and Colby Coopers and stuff. So, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about that process, that'd be awesome. Absolutely. Well, that's always been part of kind of his DNA. He grew up listening to, and honestly, I want to take you back to some initial recording sessions where we were playing back some of the demos for the band in tracking session with Joey, and Hardy calls the band back into the control room. And he said, well, you know this song right here? Well, let me play you something else. And he turns on, he, he presses play on an Andrew W.K. record. And the song ends, and the band sits back, and Hardy's like, channel that. So from the get-go, those early EP days of Hardy, that was in his blood. So that that's always been a constant in terms of his artist development and those stair-step moments. And uh, there's just been undeniably his that he couldn't pitch out from that rock side of things that he was so excited to go ahead and record and why not create this mockingbird in the chrome moment that he's able to jekyll and hide those two things and man he wrote uh the mockingbird and the crow as as a piece to kind of marry those two uh those two sides of this project and it couldn't have been more perfect for it man even even rolling that one out the way hardy did it uh when we flew out to la he actually set it up so he had half the night he performed strictly the country-leaning records of that album at the Troubadour and then does the beginning of the Mockingbird of the Crow and just cuts it off halfway through. We then take buses up to the Roxy, a rock nightclub up by like Rainbow and those guys up there. And he comes back on stage and just full distortion goes right into the Crow component and does all of the rock sides right afterwards. So, I mean, it is, it's been part of his brand DNA. It's part of how he's been kind of creating records. Couldn't imagine a better way to put those pieces together. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Morgan, man. Like, I just, I don't know what to say. This guy has just destroyed the music business in such good ways, man. Did you guys know? Okay, we're going to talk singles and albums this is a big deal these days like you know I, i'm sure you're going to tell me it's it's artist specific but did you know when you're going in to drop 36 songs that this would have as big an impact and the listeners would follow along and I, i'll give an example of what 
I think one of the earlier ones to do it, Miranda Lambert did one, and I should not, I can't remember the title of the record. And I remember trying to listen to it, and it was just too much. And I couldn't get through the whole record. And I'm an old school album collector, so that was just such a bold move to drop that much music. And I know it's kind of trending a little more, but let's talk about that. Like, what made you think or, or helped you guys go, we can do this, this is going to work? There's a lot of stuff under the hood that can tell you uh, how your audience uh, consumes your music whether it's you delivering singles, whether it's you delivering small bodies of work, whether it's ready for the prime time of big albums, or does it feel like there's this superfluous amount of energy around your record that you feel like you can go even bigger? And for Morgan's side of things, well, what we saw with Dangerous, I mean, we didn't look to immediately replicate it, but we were seeing a lot of stuff that said, hey, we can go as deep as we did on One Thing at a Time as, as we did on Dangerous. And so... And he was just writing incredible records and people were sending incredible songs in uh, that just felt like we could put all that together in this incredible body of work. And so for Morgan, I mean, he went through the stratosphere, as you know, uh, and has truly stayed out there. There, there was a, a sense that, yes, there would be an, another incredible impact. But I think it would be wrong to say, like, oh, of course he's going to do another, like, 10, 15 weeks at number one and and continue to coast along as dangerous is still top 10 record that how many years later like it is it is an absolute anomaly it is incredible blessing for for everybody involved and especially for morgan and just a a true showcase of his artistry we're so proud of him we needed that i mean for our marketplace and and as a as a publisher what's great because i could say this because we have cuts on those records that that's really, even when you don't have a single, you always talk about it. if you don't get the single, you're not making money. But when you get on a Morgan record, even one that had 36 songs, it's significant income we see. So obviously for us, this is a big deal. And do you see, I guess a, a question would be, do you see more of our artists being able to, again, we know Morgan's kind of an anomaly where he's at at the level he's at, but we're starting to see a little more growth in our streaming listening and being a kind of the data uh guy that you are do you see this hopefully trending more where we're getting more streams on album cuts and uh that that hopefully we're getting more and more younger i don't maybe it's not younger you could tell me you're the dietitian here how are all these people coming and streaming and will we see more i guess is in the future hopefully uh because man it's a blessing to publishers we need that to sustain what we do you will absolutely see more audience coming our way. It's due in part to some incredible artists. Morgan's been leading the way, Taylor, a handful of others uh, in in a lot of different formats that are kind of pointing back to country and, and taste of pointing that direction. I mean, it happens as we've seen in cycles uh, for the most part where, man, I think back to like 2010, 11, there was kind of this, we were super saturated with uh, a lot of the pop productions of Dr. Luke and Max Martin, thinking back to like the Tyler Cruz, Katy Perry, Kesha, all those records that were banging out. There was there was kind of like a burnout happening, and we saw certain pockets start to rise. One of which was the AAA alternative acts, Monsters and Men. You had Mumford and Sons coming out of the UK and Lumineers. I remember that specific pocket, like all of a sudden, just kind of got this lift. And when you were talking to fandoms, it was people looking for organic instrumentation. Uh, songwriting to its core again and and just kind of a, a breath from what had been kind of promoted for so long in the mainstream at that same time the pivot point that was happening for country was being led by tr and fgl and a slew of those uh artists that were honestly getting 
just launched off of what was happening with Syracuse on the highway. Uh, people started to tune in more on the country stations across the country in like 2012. It was a really exciting time and a pivot point that happened. Same thing was happening with R&B, where you have the alternative R&B stuff happening out of Toronto with The weekend and a variety of different guys like I Love McConan that were starting to break in the States too. And EDM kind of had a little fresh take going off with what Avicii was doing and a slew of other people. But cycles happen in about like 10 to 12 year blocks of time. And honestly, the 2022-2023 moment right now is just a very interesting time to kind of pinpoint that as a 10-year run from what's been happening, where hip-hop hasn't seen a lot of successes of recent. There haven't been a lot of major albums that have been dropping. There have been a lot of kind of fourth, fifth, sixth projects coming from a lot of veteran acts. And honestly, you, you have this music consumer that is looking for something new and country is absolutely exploded in that space and k-pop is absolutely exploding in that space and then there's two other genres one being kind of the mexican regional and starting to break uh as well as the afro pop scene starting to permeate uh the states as well too so it, it's a really interesting time but honestly country is hitting as streams are absolutely exploding for the genre uh, that revenues are going to start popping up in Q4 of this year into the top of next year uh, with the increase on Spotify's uh, subscription rates. Uh, we've had a lot of incredible progress as David Israel has kept everybody up to pace with uh, on the Hill and, and uh, supporting songwriters and their royalties. So it's, it's a really great time, especially for country, but even the deep cut uh, writers are going to see a lot of wins uh, down the road now. Yeah, dude, this is possibly as a longtime music fan, like from kid age to now, this is some of the most exciting times I've watched for me. You know, in the past, I think AR prior to, you know, all the DSPs, the music industry as a whole, we kind of told people what to listen to. You know, we had control, I guess is the word I would use. Uh, that sounds so nefarious, but we dictated, like, here, you're going to love this. We're going to put this out. You know, we found talent that we loved, and now it feels to me, I love your perspective, that we're almost consumer and fan-driven more where you see things trending and you see fans really dictating a little more, and it's more of an open marketplace. Like, you literally can be in your bedroom in the middle of the United States and create a fan base and build something, which is a little different than it used to be. Do you kind of feel that same kind of way, like, you know, the... I don't want to, again, I'm not using the word control in a bad way. It's just now it's so wide open and, and, and fans are really more engaged and bringing more to us, which uh, obviously you're paying attention to in your data, right? So there's an interesting uh, dynamic that, that let's say 2014, 2015, when Spotify was really starting to roll out in the United States, a lot of the, the word on the street was that this was a democratization moment, right? All of a sudden barriers were down. You had less of kind of the, territory by territory, windowing of releases, et cetera. Everything was available to everybody as they were starting to roll out releases. That was a really, really exciting time because all of a sudden you legally could access all of these incredible libraries around the world of music out there. Now you have the rise of a lot of the editorial uh, strengths of stuff like uh, Hot Country or uh, Today's Country or Rap Caviar. Um, and honestly, Today's Top Hits there is still kind of this gatekeeping moment that you need those big lists in order to kind of really get that multiplier of audience uh, and consumption to kind of continue the story. But 
um, it really is an exciting time. I mean, uh, from the really the other side of that is, yes, they might be curating these different playlists and, and uh, putting things into rotation and getting uh, songs on ears, but they're looking at the data. That what the audience is doing with that music as it's being exposed to them dictates whether or not those records stay in and succeed and continue to their longevity in those different playlists. So there is this kind of gatekeeper curatorial uh, part, but in balance is the audience data that we have in real time. It's no longer the call out research that's dictating the success of records. But I will say there are certain records that I've worked in the past that did not get those tier one playlists that went gold without that support. But I know that if I had had that support, I probably would have seen a platinum or double platinum certification on those particular songs. Really what consumption now is, is a hot country songs chart-esque experience. We, we usually, sorry, we used to separate radio consumption as a different metric on different charts and you just looked at sales charts. And now between both the editorial and the algorithmic pushes of records, that, that, those are songs that are being programmed to you. And in a traditional sense, we would usually pull those out. All the stuff that's being pushed to you, plus the organic consumption, is now allowing these records to have incredible top-line figures, uh, which everybody wins by. But it, it's just an interesting uh, space we're in right now and how we calculate all that. That's great. Dude, you, <laughs> deep knowledge on that part right there. Thanks. That was awesome. Do you think there'll be a time where we can create, or not we, where, where an uh, artist can become a superstar without the rails of a major or a big push on their own. Like we've seen some of these guys, like a Zach Bryan, did he need to jump on to Warner Brothers? Maybe, but the guy was selling pretty hard tickets. He was streaming extremely well. Do you think there'll be a time where somebody in that world can stay fairly completely independent and build up to where he can sell out a stadium or is that do you see that ever happening in the future that's one of my nerdy thoughts i'm like will that happen or you still always need the rails of a major and major airway push you, you definitely need a team but i don't know if it's necessarily a major and we've seen it in other formats uh guys like chance the rapper or daniel caesar in hip-hop and in r&b that have moved up to amphitheater and sometimes stadium sized audiences when they were at their peaks that they weren't backed by majors at the time, uh, but they had incredible teams behind them. So I, I think there will absolutely be anomalies that are going to be able to be have massive audiences on the live front that didn't have a traditional major label situation, but uh, for certain they need a team behind them in order to kind of amplify those audiences to the degree that they can attract something with the size of a Forest Hill Stadium or a Nissan uh, type experience. If I'm a young artist, and I know that you see this, what is some advice you would give to up and coming artists, how they can super serve these artists and help grow their careers? And I, maybe I'll pose it a little differently. Like when I was working with Kip Moore, I love this statement he said one time. He says, every time I get out of bed and I wake up in the morning, the first thought in my mind is how can I serve my fans? And that really stuck with me too. And it's like, we get so caught up in the music sometimes, but it, there's a bigger picture. If you're an artist in particular and you work at a label, like you got to serve your fans first and foremost. Do you have any advice you would give to help up and comers that like, here's some ways you can super serve your fan base and here's how you can build that out a little bit. From the K-pop perspective, uh, but really it shares it with country and, and that is being accessible to your fans. And I think it's okay to start small. There's a lot of people that aspire to, 
okay, I'm going to go get this opening slot of first of three on this stadium tour, et cetera, et cetera. But really starting small and building your fans one by one, winning them over, letting letting that bond to be to the point of like them feeling like you're their best friend kind of thing is is truly valuable. And it works in, in uh, South Korea just because of being a smaller market. But treat the Southeast. If you're if you're a Georgia artist or you're in the Carolinas, super serve your market by just being present and playing killer shows and build through those uh, those different corridors. I think uh, that's sometimes lost on this new generation that is starting on social media and then trying to figure out their next step. And they're just going for some national tour where it's like, it's okay to build in Texas first if you're a Texan artist and then aspire out to Arkansas and Louisiana and Oklahoma. We see that as well on social media where niche communities is really kind of a great place for people to start as opposed to just this grape shot across major influencers. Start small, find out who your audience is as you continue to play for them, watch your own data under the hood, see where they're from, what their uh, demographics are, and super serve that and in the aspiration to keep building that and give them something to talk about. I mean, there's there's so much stuff out there that people can access you now. It starts with great music as we keep harping back to, but it's, it's just starting small. I think it's okay to, uh, to be your strategy. The AIMP Nashville Pubcast is hosted by yours truly, Tim Hunzey, producer Brandon Harrington, mixing and editing by Casey Porter, and this has been a Dime Collective production.